Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Randy Blankstein. Thanks, Victor. I appreciate you having me. Randy, great to have you here. I'm excited about this conversation because there's so much shifting underneath our feet these days. I don't think that the general public, in fact, much of the investor community, truly understand the long-lasting impact that the pandemic is going to have on real estate and real estate markets, on use of real estate. And I know you've got a perspective on this. So maybe why don't we just dive right in, maybe give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Quickly, I ran as a third-party service provider, AT&T's industrial portfolio in the Midwest, which is the service vehicles where all their cable fixing and phone fixing vehicles go at the end of the day, the service trucks. Started that as my career. And in order to buy and sell those, we did sell these bags and build the suits. We had to buy them from landlords who owned them from the 50s and 60s, had zero basis in the properties. And the only way to get them to sell them to us, which was AT&T at the time, was to get them to do a 1031 exchange, which is a tax deferral vehicle used to sell one property, buy another without paying the taxes. And to do that, I had to find them net lease properties, which is Walgreens, Home Depot, et cetera, kind of introduce them to this type of market, understand it was really a vibrant market. It wasn't an industry like it is today. There wasn't net lease conferences or net lease REITs or an industry. It was just single tenant properties, conservative passive vehicles. I saw that it was an industry and I was all of 27 to thought that I was smart and <laughs> didn't know what I didn't know. Well, my own company called the Boulder Group and it's a boutique and we've been doing net lease investment sales ever since for the last 20 years. Fantastic. I love that. Certainly, the market has changed. Like you said, a lot of REITs have come into the space. There's a lot of big money chasing it, maybe even too much money. There's been a lot of build to suit that's been done over the last little bit. Many markets, quite frankly, are oversupplied, as well as a lot of product is functionally obsolete, especially with some of the changes that have taken place over the last couple of years. What are you seeing in terms of, let's start with the traditional shopping mall. What's happening there are they dying? Are they dead? Is it an outdated model? Is it coming back? What do you think? I don't think it's coming back. I think that certain ones, mostly A locations in affluent areas will continue to do okay or, or, or well, or at least won't be closing. I think some of the B and C ones won't have enough supporting tents to make them all worthwhile. Certainly younger consumer shopping habits have changed. And I think the day of people spending hours in a mall are probably behind us, not in front of us. But I think there's a lot of viable tenants in those malls. Again, I use Apple and Lululemon as kind of examples of tenants who these malls, very viable concepts and could do good as standalone concepts. And my thesis is, and it's been playing out over time, is that Apple doesn't need to be in a mall to do all traffic <laughs> and people don't need to spend the time and effort to get to the mall park, go locate Apple. They're very happy with Apple's freestanding locations, which they already have a bunch of. They want to go and get what they need from Apple and leave Apple. So I think freestanding locations are better suited for that. And I think a lot of tenants who are in the mall will do well, you know, outside of the mall. And some of those tenants probably won't be with us because in general, the United States is over retailed on a per square foot basis versus everywhere else. You see e-commerce gaining market share. COVID's kind of accelerated trends of tenants who were not doing good pre-pandemic, kind of thought they had three to five year runway before they eventually went out of business. Now they're probably accelerated that to maybe a year. You're really bifurcating from the strong tenants to the weak tenants. I think this was something that was going to play out anyway. It just has occurred a lot faster. And then again, you look besides for malls in decline. I don't think big boxes in decline. I think big boxes in the middle of a changing landscape and a changing footprint. <laughs> so some of these tenants, which are 16, 80,000 square feet, 
are deciding, well, I could be in 30 to 40,000 feet and the things I used to sell kind of on the periphery, maybe those are online items and I'm only going to stock the core items at the store. So I think you're seeing changing footprints in the big box space. The malls and other kinds of retail has a variety of other issues, but I think freestanding locations, specifically ones that are well-located, corner locations, or ones that are drive through specifically, are going to do very well. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of restaurants who are going to leave strip centers, and I think you've already seen it with you know, Dunkin' Donuts and Panera, and go find freestanding locations because drive throughs are more important than ever. These are some of the changes in retail real estate that's occurring. I think that's an astute observation. Let's look at one particular segment, maybe as a case study, and I'm going to put two businesses side by side that are in the same space. One of one of my favorite places to shop, Fry's Electronics, closed down this week. I was deeply saddened to see that. They overlapped to some extent with, say, Best Buy, and Best Buy had a banner year in 2020. Fry's failed to capitalize on it. What are your thoughts? I think you're seeing consolidation to the strongest and largest categories. You know, this category already had the sector consolidation previously with Best Buy taking out Circuit City. (laughs) And they've appeared as kind of the dominant player. They have some competition on a limited basis, which is the electronic category within Walmart and Target and other people who compete with them. But as a standalone space, usually there's two players in the space to make it strong. In the drugstore sector, it's Walgreens and CVS. Most sectors have two, some have three players. The electronics category has ended up being a one-player sector. I don't know if there's going to be a direct challenger to Best Buy moving forward. I think it's already on the e-commerce side and it's Amazon and everybody else is fighting for the non-Amazon market share. Yeah, I think that's accurate. After I got over my my sadness of seeing Rise disappear, I started looking at their real estate, seeing who owned it and saying, wow, that 10 to 12 acre parcel in that prime location looks pretty interesting. What do you think is going to happen with a lot of this land that's going to get repurposed? Because it's not coming back as a fries. It's probably not coming back as a supermarket either. It's too big a footprint. You know, what else is going to go in there? Well, what we're seeing is there's not many big boxes that are expanding right now. Very few. Walmart being one, but not many behind them. And they're very unique. Most of these are being repurposed for non-retail. The majority of things I've seen of big boxes that have gone vacant recently have become either A, multifamily or B, mixed use. And I think that's kind of where we're ending up again, I think is retail physical footprint shrinks, lack of retailers to take their place, I think you're going to find a lot of big box like why people are divvying up for a variety of other purposes, which is one of the reasons you were looking at it and not a tenant yeah. for the next year. Absolutely. As a multifamily investor, when I look at this, I'm not only looking at the new supply coming into the market, I'm also looking at some of these commercial spaces that could be repurposed because let's face it, in the core of a city, in the core of the urban area, there aren't that many land assemblies of 10, 12, 15 acres that you're able to put together. So if those are going to get repurposed, it's most likely going to be some form of residential. It's probably not going to be a high-rise office complex. So now that at some point, I don't know whether it's a year, two years, five years, that's going to become residential. That's going to be new competing supply coming into that market. It's almost inevitable. There's no question about it. I mean, even when it does turn to retail, it turns to four different outlots. You get four different QSRs, (laughs) maybe a Chick-fil-A and a few others that kind of take its place. There's just not big tenants to fill these larger box locations or 12 acres. So, you know, maybe you get a Tesla dealership and a few QSRs, but that's kind of the alternative if there's not a multifamily play there. Right. I keep hearing from people that are in the shopping center space saying, well, retail is not dead, retail is not dead. And I agree with that. But at the same time, if you get a shrinkage of 20, 30% 
in demand in the marketplace, that changes the economics enough to kill the market for almost everybody, in my view, because now there's downward pressure on rents, there's rent concessions all over the place. It takes everyone down to a level of maybe tolerable pain, but nobody's making any money. What do you think? Yeah, look, I don't think that's that far off. I think a lot of the e-commerce gains have already baked in, meaning people understand where their market share is today and we're 20 years in Mm -hmm. and understand that there's still more market share to be had by e-commerce. If you looked at prior to COVID and go back to kind of what people were banked on, which was experiential, things like Top Golf and Dave and Buster's and other type of concepts. I mean, some of these are viable, some of them aren't. And there's certain level of retail, which I think will always exist. But yeah, look, it could be anywhere from, from 10 to 25% less than it is today. And I think people need to understand the new realities and get used to them. And I think more urban infill locations are the ones, the retail with you know, other viable uses are the ones that will be most profitable. When you talk about dragging people down, I think that's mostly not infill. <laughs> that's going to be second and third tier markets where that land is not easily readily redeveloped into something else, much more concerning. Right, right. Now, your focus right now from our prior conversation was primarily on single tenant. What do you think is driving that? All our focus is on single tenant. Um, And there's a few things driving it. One is QSR. As far as drive-throughs, there's this COVID has highlighted the need for drive-throughs and maybe not just one, maybe two or three drive-throughs for each tenant. So I think every restaurant, even casual dining restaurants, now are looking for drive-through because even if their customers aren't going there, the takeout and delivery service, you know, Uber Eats, DoorDash, they're looking for a quicker delivery thing. So you're going to see a lot of non-traditional fast food type restaurants looking for drive throughs So I think that's one way to get people into freestanding buildings. And then two, I think, look, there's a convenience factor, which is if you're not going to do certain things online, it needs to be better convenient than before. People are changing their habits and aren't going to malls. So if you're on the way home and you quickly are convenient to somebody to stop in and get something that's in a small box footprint, that's viable real estate moving forward. <laughs> Whereas some of these larger boxes and some of these second and third tier strip malls and malls are going to be more challenging in the days ahead. I was attending a family office conference earlier today where there was a particular investor that was talking about building a brand new outlet mall just outside Pisa in Italy. And everyone's scratching their head saying, well, wait a minute, you know, Main Street is kind of going through transition. Why would you go after an outlet mall, especially in a bit of an outlying area? Why would that even work? Um, I'm not sure that would work. I mean, I think there's a few people who are banking on either A, a revival or having unique product, meaning, look, it's a new construction product and you'll probably get all the A retailers for an outlet mall and maybe it becomes an attraction or a destination. But even if his does work, you certainly can't copy it or build two or three others like it. It may be an outlier. There's a part of the retail experience that will always exist. It's just a lot different than it is today. And you know, can one off project maybe survive? The answer is yes. The answer is, can multiple projects like that survive? The answer is clearly no. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. In fact, uh, Tandred built an outlet mall not five minutes from my house, and it's impressive. They've got lots of brands in there and you know, big footprints, quite frankly. And in our climate, I live in a northern climate, just not very different than Chicago. That walk from the parking lot to the Nike store, when it's blowing like crazy and it's freezing cold, is just not something I'm interested in at all. So I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it's a great model, especially in the northern climates. We are in agreement. I don't know how sustainable that is going forward. And if retail is shrinking moving forward, I think you're looking at a sector that's shrinking even greater than retail as a whole, especially in northern climates. I'm with you. I'm from Chicago. Absolutely. Well, Randy, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? 
is our website, bouldergroup.com. There's a contact us page. My information is there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, those are probably the best two ways to get in touch with me. I love it. Thank you, Randy. Thank you for the perspectives. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Randy at bouldergroup.com. That's bouldergroup.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.